is called Melting Pot or, or Civil War. Neil Ferguson, who we really like on this show, said the choice between Melting Pot or Civil War may seem like a stark one. Uh, Salem persuasively argues that without a radical reform of the U.S. immigration system, our already polarized society might very well come apart at the seams, which is a pretty dire warning. High praise from J.D. Vance, author of Hillbilly Elegy as well, for melting pot or civil war, a son of immigrants makes the case against open borders. So Raihan Salama joins us, the author of Melting Pot or Civil War, a son of immigrants makes the case against open borders. Raihan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And you're getting a lot of attention for this book. I'm glad because this is a topic we cover a lot. What uh, what made you write the book? Honestly, I just became so alarmed by the rancorousness of our political discourse and how much it seemed as though people were talking past each other when they talk about immigration. You have this tremendous self-righteousness on one side, and on the other side, you have people who seem as though they're demonizing immigrants and immigration, and I just couldn't recognize myself in that conversation, so I wanted to add some common sense. You know, it's funny. I've been thinking about political science a lot. That was my, you know, field in school, and my youngest is taking all those classes. And, you know, you, you take political theory classes, and they're all about, you know, the different political systems. I'd love to have a, a political theory class that's all about how to whip up mobs and how to get them unwhipped up, because it seems like the, the tenor of the conversation is just shouting at each other. There is a lot of truth to that. Uh, whipping up fear and anger is a great strategy uh, politically in the short term. It's a very dangerous strategy if you want a free society. And I guess my view is that when it comes to immigration, you need some kind of balanced, sensible, middle ground position that is going to allow us to go forward in a world that's changing because of automation and globalization and much else. That's why I believe we need controlled, managed immigration that's in the national interest. Well, it hasn't been controlled or managed for quite a few decades. And is that how we ended up in a situation where you you press one for Spanish and people are waving Mexican flags at uh, U.S. sporting events? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, I do think that people are assimilating, but they're assimilating in very different ways. There are some people who are assimilating into the mainstream, but there are other people who are assimilating into marginalized segregated communities where they're cut off from the mainstream. And that builds a lot of resentment. And I think that that's going to become a bigger problem in the future, even than it is at present. And it's already a problem. Why do you think it's happening like that? Well, the big picture is that the whole global economy, the world is very different now than it was 100 years ago. 100 years ago, you had a large amount of immigration, but you had a large amount of immigration into a society that did not have a welfare state, number one, certainly not on the scale of what we have today, but also it was a society where there was a premium on brawn. That is, People could do back-breaking labor and then somehow climb their way into the middle class. That's much harder now because, you know, again, we have machines. We have offshoring. We have all of these other alternatives to that kind of labor. And what that means is that low-skill labor is just in a much tougher position in America today than was the case a century ago. Well, expound on the idea of the welfare state and how that plays a role in this, because it's always seemed to me that this would be self-limiting if we didn't have the welfare state. You wouldn't. You wouldn't show up to a country where you were not going to uh, you know, be able to feed yourself, get medical care if you couldn't find a job. 
It really is true. A hundred years ago, when you look at that big wave of immigration that came to the United States, a huge number of those folks actually went back to their native countries. And the reason they went back, well, there are lots of reasons. But one reason is that, hey, if you found that it was a real struggle to support yourself and to support your loved ones, you might have decided to pack it up and go back home. Now, in contrast, we have a very different perspective. We say, okay, we want to lift everyone up. We want to invest in people's kids. If they don't earn enough for themselves, we provide them with food stamps and Medicaid, as you alluded to, and much else. And those programs, they're not free. They're not cheap. We subsidize people's wages with the earned income tax credit and, and you know, the refundable portion of the child credit because we're saying, hey, you're not able to earn enough to lead a decent life. So the government is going to step in. And under those conditions, immigration is a very different story. Well, I, I found intriguing the uh, the argument in your book about the middle class, who's who's in the middle class, who can rise to the middle class, locking people out of the middle class. Can you explain um, for folks who haven't read the book what you're talking about there? There are all sorts of ways in which our society has made it really tough for people, whether you're native or foreign-born, to enter the middle class. Think about how expensive housing is in some of our bigger cities. Uh, think of how expensive it is to get a, a college education and much else. You know, those are really big barriers, and it's kind of why I fear that our society is more divided in class terms. And in a way, immigration is a part of this story, because you now have a situation where you have immigrants who have limited skills, they might be incredibly hardworking. They might be great, tremendous people, but they're coming into a very different country in which upward mobility is tougher. And that's why I'm saying, okay, number one, we want to tackle those obstacles to upward mobility, including high housing prices and and much else. But then we also want to say, hey, we're going to admit immigrants on the basis of whether or not they have the skills they need to thrive in the United States. And we're not doing that right now. We're talking with Ryan Salam, who's got the book out, Melting Pot or Civil War, that's getting a lot of attention on this this issue that is, on one hand, seems so easily, easily solved to me. On the other hand, is perplexing for a number of reasons. Do you get into that on how both parties have been complicit in our messed up immigration system? I do get into that. And I'm glad you said that, in a way, it's not so difficult to solve this problem. We could do it if we were willing to respect folks, uh, you know, on other sides of this debate. My fear is that there are people who are saying, I love immigrants, I want to welcome immigrants, but then who are saying, we do not want a controlled, managed system. What you wind up having is, and this is particularly true on the Democratic side, you have people who say, oh, I'm not saying I want open borders, but then they're saying I want to abolish ICE, or I want to dismantle enforcement, or there's no enforcement policy I'm willing to support. And that gets you in this very difficult place. Then, you know, you have Republicans who are saying, you know, look, um, you know, this seems like an out of control system. And then some people justifiably get angry and frustrated about the fact that the system is out of control and it's not serving the interests of Americans at large. So I think that that's why we're kind of caught in this loop where we're not having a real conversation about real solutions. Well, we've 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 talked about and had guests on who put out the idea that this is a, a release valve for a troubled country that is Mexico so they don't end up with a civil war. This is propping up our social security system over time because we've got a population that doesn't have babies. Is that uh, giving too much credit to the Illuminati uh, being puppet masters on this thing when it's just kind of a haphazard mess? 
You know, it's funny when you look at these issues, if you look at Social Security, for example, I mean, this is a very frustrating issue because people talk about all immigrants as though all immigrants are the same. All immigrants are going to have exactly the same trajectory in the labor market and what have you. And that is totally wrong. We generalize about this when the truth is that immigrants who come to the country with skills and social capital and the ability to speak English reasonably well, they're in a much better position. That's not because they're better people. That's not because they're more moral or what have you. It just so happens that in a 21st century economy, those are immigrants who are able to make bigger contributions um, in terms of the taxes they pay, and they're less likely to rely on the safety net. There are other immigrants who, again, are oftentimes great people, decent, hardworking people who don't mean any harm, but those are folks who can't always support their families. And that means that other folks have to step up to do that. So I think that there's a lot of, frankly, flimflam in this debate. People try to distract from that by talking about averages, talking about all immigrants rather than differentiating, uh, you know, because look, that's kind of like saying that all natives are exactly the same or, you know, it's, it's just crazy. I mean, this is a very diverse group of folks, some of whom are in a much better position than others to succeed. But given the fact that we absolutely need uh, young young workers, we need babies, we need active workers supporting the increasing number of uh, old folks on Social Security. Do you think both parties are complicit in, in letting unfettered immigration go for that purpose? I want to drive one point home that people don't know about, people don't talk about. In the early 1980s, 11% of new green cards were given to people over the age of 50. Last year, it was 20% about twice as high as it was before. So people say that immigration is a way for us to make the country younger. I get that. I think there's something to that. But the current policy, which emphasizes family ties over age, over skills, over much else, is actually leading to a situation in which you have a huge number of older immigrants uh, entering the country. And I definitely think this is a failure of both political parties, Um, you know, partly because you had lots of Republicans in the past who were saying, we want more guest workers. We want to pursue policies that work for employers rather than for the long-term interests of the country. And then again, as we just discussed before, you have folks on the left who just don't seem to acknowledge that Americans want a controlled system in the national interest. So that's part of why we're in such a chaotic situation. But I mean, I think the age thing is, is just one example of many of how we don't talk about the real issues. We talk about these abstractions rather than what's happening on the ground. Executive editor of the National Review, Raihan Salam, has agreed to stick around uh, for a few more minutes to talk about melting pot or civil war. I want to get into this whole idea of uh, doing jobs Americans won't do and what that means for society. And also, you know, since this is a bit of a threat in the uh, title, civil war, how would that come about? What would that look like as things get uglier and uglier? Um, And if you've got a question, I wouldn't mind seeing it on the text line at 415-295-KFTC. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. nation. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Let us be lovers, we'll marry our fortunes together. 
Every once in a while, a book lands, gets a lot of attention. Melting Pot or Civil War is one of those books. A Son of Immigrants makes the case against open borders. Ryan Salam is the author, and we've been uh, talking with him, and uh, it's interesting stuff. Indeed, yeah. Thanks for hanging around. We appreciate it. It's great to be here. So, uh, listen, uh, it's difficult to counter an irrational argument with a rational one. But, you know, those of us, and, and we have a very moderate, to my mind, reasonable view of immigration, but we've been called racists or xenophobes many times. How do you suggest folks in the audience or we respond when somebody says, oh, you're just a racist? Honestly, it's really hard to know what you do. It depends on your relationship with that person. If that's someone who is close to you, uh, you know, you've got to um, try to repair that relationship. You know, there, there might be other things going on. Uh, but if it's someone you don't know, if it's someone, you know, you just have basically that person is telling you, I'm not listening to you. Uh, that person is telling you that they don't respect your opinion. And, um, you know, that's that's a real problem. And I, I think we hear a lot of that. By the way, there are some cases where there are people who are actually racist. That's a real thing. But my sense is that the vast majority of people who want a controlled, rational immigration system aren't racist at all. In fact, quite the opposite. They just want a system that's not going to engender uh, and that's not going to exacerbate tensions. Oh, sure. I I hear the term anti-immigrant a lot, and I personally have never met anybody who's actually anti-immigrant. I know plenty of people who are anti-illegal immigration. Yeah, I'm sure that there are you know, people out there who sure. um, have hateful sentiments and what have you, but I think that the vast majority of people who are fired up at the, about this issue really care about whether or not we have a system that's working for all Americans, particularly uh, working class Americans. Well, the, the, anytime you mention Donald Trump, people immediately go into their camps and it gets complicated. But but three of his uh, tenants for immigration poll very, very well, like in the 80 percentile with the, with the Republicans and Democrats approving of uh, ending chain migration, securing the borders and making it merit based, as in you, you, you know, we, we decide what sort of person we want and let them in. Why can't we make that happen uh, if most people agree on those three things? Well, one of the issues is that uh, you could pretty much get a poll that's giving you any answer you want, right? So there are people on the left who have other poll results that give you a different answer. But fundamentally, what you described, I do believe, is very broadly popular with the American public. And I do think we could get there. The barrier is that there are a lot of people who feel like they can make political hay out of preventing some kind of reasonable agreement. And that's what we're looking at now. If you demonize your opponents, then it becomes really easy to make it seem like their totally reasonable, broadly popular proposals are somehow crazy. And I think we're seeing a lot of that right now. Yeah, as we often point out on on the Armstrong and Getty show, many politicians would rather have an issue than solve an issue. Yes. And I think that when you're talking about chain migration in particular, I do believe that there's a better way to talk about this. And it's simply saying this. Remember when I mentioned before about how how many immigrants to the country now are older, they're over the age of 50. You know, one thing you could just simply say, and you saw this in one of the recent Republican legislative proposals, is this. You can bring your elderly parent into the country if you make sure that you've purchased health insurance for your elderly parent so that 
the government doesn't have to pick up the tab, so that taxpayers don't have to pick up the tab. That is a very reasonable proposal. You can say this across the board. There are all kinds of areas where you have a common sense proposal. There are over 4 million people who are waiting for green cards uh, because they have relatives in the United States. And, you know, we don't have any priority for them. We don't say, aha, if you speak English, if you have a job offer, if you're going to be able to support yourself, then we'll move you to the front of the line. We don't do anything like that. That seems so simple and straightforward. Instead, we just argue about these things that are just totally, they have nothing to do with what are the actual facts on the ground. Well, I've always hated the phrase, doing the the jobs Americans won't do. Now, with unemployment as low as it is now, you might be able to actually make the argument. But people were making that argument, even when unemployment was quite a bit higher, that Americans shouldn't go do these jobs. We should import an underclass that will mow our lawns and work in our kitchens. That seems like a racist attitude. That is really dead on. It's incredible because even now with a tight labor market, there is a simple answer if there are folks who won't do the job. You pay more. You offer higher wages, and then if you find, okay, well, that's tough. We can't pay all of these folks higher wages. Uh, you know, we've run out of people who are willing to do it, who are desperate enough to do the job for that wage. Well, then guess what? That's how you have, that's why you have automation. That's why you have innovation. You know, there was a time when we had horses uh, dragging everything, right? We didn't have trucks. We didn't have automobiles doing that. You develop that innovation because labor wound up being too expensive. That's where productivity gains come from. That's why you make economic progress. So I think that high wages are actually, call me crazy, I believe they're a good thing because they actually spur innovation. They spur productivity improvements. And it's always struck me as bizarre that our friends on the left uh, instead say, no, 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 let's let's import a bunch of brown people and have them do the work for, for wages so white people would never accept. That's the progressive uh, prescription. Well, and it's also not just brown people, right? It's people of all colors, but the idea is that you're going to bring folks in, and then you're simultaneously going to say that, you know, these folks are in desperate need of the safety net. They're in desperate need of Medicaid and SNAP, and oh, by the way, we actually need these workers who, by your own logic, are not being paid enough to support themselves. It kind of boggles the mind, uh, and I do think you're right. There is this danger of creating some kind of underclass that's locked out of the middle class, and then, you you know, that creates lots of problems down the road. I want a melting pot society in which Americans of all colors are united by their belief in the American dream, are part of a large, prosperous middle class. But that's not where open borders will get you. Open borders will, in my opinion, get you to a more divided society. We've got about a minute left. The title is Melting Pot or Civil War. Do you actually, is that just a, a jazzy title to get attention? Or do you think we could actually head that direction if we continue down this path? Anyone who's been paying attention to the news for these last few weeks sees the level of rancor and anger, this feeling that we're already in a kind of cold civil war in which Americans just feel like they, they just can't live together. And I'm afraid that the title, um, you know, it's becoming more vivid by the day. I agree. We need a melting pot. We need a unifying story about this country. Raihan Salam, author of Melting Potter Civil War, A Son of Immigrants, makes the case against open borders. We could talk to you for a long time. Good stuff, Ryan. Thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's our pleasure. Well done. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, man, it's frustrating trying to just argue reasonable common sense and get, you know, these emotional slogans thrown back at you.
And this idea of a civil war, I wouldn't have said this a week ago, but after this last week of the way people have, have reacted to things in this whole Kavanaugh story, I actually believe we could have violence in the streets. 100% right. Uh, what's coming up in your news, Marshall? Well, Trump taking a victory lap after the breakthrough in new trade deal. The FBI is expanding its list of interviewees in the Kavanaugh background checks. Yeah. Uh, learned some stuff about drinking from columnists over the weekend, how it applies to Kavanaugh. All coming up on the Armstrong and Getty Show. So, you got this old classmate from Yale who says he saw Brett slur, heard Brett slur his words, and I saw him staggering oh, from alcohol. It proves it. Not all of which was beer. Says this old classmate from Yale from dang near 40 years ago. Ermagerd! So, uh, uh, the, the, the idea that these peripheral issues somehow prove the central issue is uh, that's the province of the soft head. Well, I guess it doesn't I, prove anything. The idea is that if he's lying, then, uh, you know, why is he lying? Well, yeah. He's lying about his yearbook, if he's lying about how much he drank, if he's lying about various things. Yeah, I, I get that. Although, uh, the, the main contention, his main contention, was that. I didn't forget what happened. And saying, oh no, I saw him really drunk is not a counter to that assertion. There was an interesting uh, article by a woman who's done research on it about blackouts in the New York Times over the weekend about how they're really an indication of practically nothing. And, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Other but, than than your uh, than how your brain reacts to alcohol. And, and one final follow-up on our uh, interview with Raihan Salam, uh, The Melting Pot of Civil War. And the subtitle is, as we mentioned, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders. It's annoying to me. I get it, but it's annoying to me that he has to make clear, uh, I'm the son of immigrants, so I don't hate immigrants. Right. And I'm advocating a sane immigration policy. The idea that only he can go there right. is 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 a great example of how stupid, unproductive, and dangerous the identity politics thing is. Well, and there's no winning, as you saw. So if you'd have had a bunch of old white men interviewing a woman, that's wrong. But then they choose a woman to do it for them, and that's wrong. Right. So what was the answer there? I don't know what it was. Let's get to the news now with Marsha Phillips. Well, you're talking about the Kavanaugh investigation. One of the women accusing the nominee of sexual misconduct says she has indeed talked with the FBI. NBC News is reporting Deborah Ramirez also provided a list of witnesses who she says can corroborate her allegation that Kavanaugh exposed himself to her at a party. I thought, according to the New York Times, she'd contacted all of them and they'd all said, I don't remember that. Well, and that was the gal who called classmates for a week and said, I'm trying to remember this. I'm not sure if it was Brett or somebody else. Do you remember? I mean, come on. But a week later, after consulting with her attorney, now she's sure. All right. Meantime, NBC, Jack, you mentioned this, says Kavanaugh's former college roommate, Chad Luddington, will talk with the FBI about Kavanaugh's alleged belligerent behavior after drinking. That's, uh, Again, peripheral and peripheral issue that proves nothing. Jack can tell you I am guilty of belligerence from time to time, especially young Joe. Um, <laughs> and, and and I have never, ever, 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 ever touched a woman without her permission. So that's just dumb. Young Joe is more belligerent. <laughs> Shut yeah, up! I was going to say, imagine. Yeah, stand back. <laughs> 
Uh, meanwhile, the Supreme Court's new term is starting today. Kavanaugh not going to be joining him for another week at the earliest. In a best-case scenario for Kavanaugh, the FBI's not going to turn up anything that might frighten Senate Republicans, and he'll be on the Supreme Court bench by October the 8th. Well, really? Yes. So if he got confirmed this weekend, he'd be on the bench come Monday morning. He's yes. doing keg stands on the bench right there. <laughs> unfair, unfair. Yes. He's figuring out ways to screw women out of controlling their own bodies, because that's his only job. Ah, right. He can go ahead and recuse himself if he wants so many cases that he hasn't heard oh, boy, the that, arguments. Oh, we haven't even brought that up. So yeah. that was a big point of contention over the weekend yeah. on your, your, your talk shows was does he have to recuse himself on any political case that involves Democrats since he was so hostile to the Democrats during the hearings? That's the argument that's being made by by a, a lot of people. Well, I think you would uh, respond by saying, well, let's take a look at his enti- the entirety mm-hmm. of his uh, rulings, his uh, his legal writings, his uh, being a judge. The, the idea that, and, and another big I'm not point. sure I'd let him be the decision maker on a Cory Booker versus something case, but uh, other than that, <laughs> I think it'll be all right. Yeah. One of the other uh, popular points being made was that, uh, did you see him explode? Uh, he was so angry. Uh, he does not have the detached demeanor a judge must have. Two points to that stupidiculous argument. Number one, y- yeah, y- why don't you walk into a courtroom and accuse the judge of being a rapist, an a-hole, the rest of it, you'll find the judge's demeanor is significantly different than when he's just being a judge. And the second thing is, you want to go know the guy's demeanor, well, gee, I wish he'd served as the judge on the second highest court in the land for 10 years, and we could definitively learn what his demeanor is. That's just silly. Yeah, well, everybody picked up on the fact that he came out a little hot, but, you know... He was mad. Play Matt Damon again. That clip is so funny. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so you start. No, the other one about the 11. What, what are we paying you guys for? How did you feel about Matt Damon drinking all that water? I like when he shotgunned the one can of water. That was pretty funny. <laughs> one other note. President Trump taking a victory lap this morning. He's touting the new trade deal with Canada and Mexico today. He just started briefing reporters in D.C. It's my great honor to announce that we have successfully completed negotiations on a brand new deal to terminate and replace NAFTA and the NAFTA trade agreements with an incredible new U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement called U.S. MCA sort of just works. MCA. No, no, trade wars. Everybody loses. Oh, Trump's a maniac. Oh no. <laughs> well, at least this portion of it is solved before the election, so that's interesting. How did they decide which order to have the countries in in the name of it? U.S., Mexico, Canada. Mm-hmm. Do you think he, he told Canada you're taking the ass end because you were the last to agree? Especially when USCAM is a, you know, it's got some phonetic <laughs> potential there. Sure. USCAM. USCAM's pretty good. Yeah. Sounds like a uh, social media site, Sean. Trademark that. I'm on it. All right. That's a wrap. That's your news. I'm Marshall Phillips. The Armstrong and Getty Show, the conscience of the nation. We'll play you some more Matt Damon as Judge Kavanaugh from Saturday Night Live coming up. Let me tell you this. I'm going to start at an 11. <laughs> I'm going to take it to about a 15 real quick. (laughs) (laughs) Matt Damon's incredibly annoying politically, but he is very funny. (laughs) God dang it, that was funny. That was well done. It was a little long, 13 minutes, probably longer than you needed. But uh, 
That's a Saturday Night Live specialty. Just beat that dead horse. <laughs> any jokes left? Anybody? Anybody got any jokes, even bad ones? No? Okay, end it. Boy, so uh, Steve Bannon was on Bill Maher Friday night, and did they have an interesting conversation? We ought to play you some of that. Oh, no, no. Steve Bannon, you can't even allow him to speak because he's too dangerous. A point Bill Maher makes. Stay tuned to the Armstrong and Getty Show. Armstrong and Getty. The conscience of the nation. And just look at look at my calendar. <laughs> and you're gonna see that every night I was lifting weights with PJ and Squeeze <laughs> and Hansy Hank, <laughs> Gangbang Greg. <laughs> which you know the liberal media is gonna find some way to spin. Oh god. Not fair. <laughs> Not fair. Although I didn't find the calendar thing very compelling. I mean, yeah. On Saturday Night Live or in real life? In real life. I mean, it's just, it's not, what's the, there's a word in law that it's not, it's, it doesn't prove much. Ipso facto. It's, no, that's not it. <laughs> oh. Um, but it's, uh, that is a term. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Anyway. Probative. Uh, Probative? So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm convinced we're headed toward a civil war. We just had a guest on, uh, brought it up over immigration. The, the way things have been for the last week. Uh, and I think one of the low points in recent memory in the United States was when Steve Bannon was disinvited to sit down with David Remnick of The New Yorker. When you can't have two smart people from opposite sides sit down and talk because the hatred is so great, you got real, real problems. Right. One's been so demonized, people think he's a demon. I appreciate Bill Maher because he's the kind of guy who does this um, as a as a real advocate for progressive liberal stuff on his show, Bill Maher had Steve Bannon on, and they talked about that a little bit, a little bit right after uh, Steve Bannon walked out on stage Friday night. I'm going to say to you what I always say to conservatives when they come here. First of all, thank you. I appreciate it, and it says volumes why the Republicans are in power and we have none. Hillary Clinton never came here. Maybe she'd be president if she was a little more confident. Big time. Yeah. So, and... Uh, <laughs> And I know that, uh, you know, you had a little event there at the New Yorker. They had a festival. In fact, I want to read Malcolm Gladwell's quote because they were going to interview you. Yep. And then you were disinvited. I've been disinvited many times, by the way. It's a good club. <laughs> and Malcolm Gladwell said, call me old-fashioned, but I would have thought that the point of a festival of ideas was to expose the audience to ideas. <laughs> if you only invite your friends over, it's called a dinner party. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Well, they chased me for, uh, you know, David Remnick chased me for a year to be on his podcast. And he came to me and said, hey, we'd be honored if you were in this festival of ideas. I said, fine, I don't want compensation. But I like going into hostile audiences with tough interviewers. I mean, you know, I do very little conservative media now. I do CNN, BBC, right. you know, the, the yeah. economists. I go to the toughest places, toughest, toughest interviewers and say, hey, no holds barred. Right. Hostile audiences, let's get it on. And again, that's why the Republicans are in power. So let me ask you about I think it does sharpen, it sharpens the blade. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, Mars, is an interesting guy. Yeah, well, good for him. Yeah. I, 
Yeah, it's, yeah. That New Yorker thing made me crazy. That was just such cowardice. Remnick is so smart and so tough. Do you want? Do you want to see Bannon flayed? That's how it happens. But you can't if he's a demon from the underbelly of hell. Well, how about Bill Maher saying Hillary Clinton wouldn't come on my show? She might be president now if she had. That is something. Just yeah. scared to go on the Bill Maher show. Because what if somebody said something unpredictable and how would I react? And we haven't had a chance to focus group it and, you know, that whole thing. Uh, but anyway, a little. I haven't watched the whole 13-minute thing. I really want to because, uh, I mean, he pretty quickly get they pretty quickly get into their disagreements on stuff, which is interesting. But... Um, uh, Bill Maher wanted to pick the brain of somebody on the other side on this topic. You of all people, I want the answer to this. Who scares you? Who do you think could do good? How do you handicap the people? What do you think about uh, Elizabeth Warren? What do you think about Bernie Sanders? What do you think about Kamala Harris? What do you think about Gavin Newsom? What do you? Th- okay, I know you like them all. What? Do- <laughs> Eric Holder, what do you think about all these people? And then I say Michael Avenatti. I saw that tweet he wrote the other day, and I said, he could be the Trump of 2020, the guy who's the outsider who, like, blows through the, the regular politician because he looks different and he's got if, balls. If Bernie Sanders had an ounce of Avenatti's fearlessness, he would have been the Democratic nominee, and we would have had a much tougher time being. Bernie doesn't have fearlessness? Not, not like Avenatti. Avenatti, and I, I've well, not done any due diligence on this guy. Right. But I'm telling you, he's got a fearlessness. Right. That, and That's he's a I'm... fighter. He's a fighter. He right. Would, he, I think he'll go through a lot of this field if he decides to stick with it, like a sift through grass. Now, I don't happen to think a professional politician, because I think we're in a new age. I don't think a professional politician is going to be there at the end of the day. I've always said it's going to be someone like Oprah or an Avenetti, or somebody that's more media savvy is going to be there. But I think one thing people... You should, think that's good? I think, it's, I think it's just a reality of today. Yeah, that's the question. Is that yeah. a good thing? He said, no, it's a reality of the day. It might be the reality, and, and Bannon would know as well as anybody. It definitely ain't good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it definitely I, ain't good. I don't think it's impossible a politician with those instincts will emerge. Uh, I think it's incredibly likely that uh, we haven't heard their name yet or are only dimly aware of it. What was that? You've you've pointed out many times that uh, if you if you take a look at who's leading, like the top five, oh, yeah. um, uh, two years out from a presidential election, yeah, almost never ends up being them. No, even the nominee or you know, yeah, nobody on that top five list. Giuliani, Hillary, Jeb Bush. These are all names that have recently been at the tops of these lists years out, and they they didn't even get close. Um, in uh, various cases, so yeah. Do you, do you agree with Bannon? You think it's going to be somebody Ofra esque? I don't know. You know, I just, right. yeah. it's 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 troubling to think that we're into this age that you almost have to be a celebrity from the get go to get the kind of attention you need, and then understanding the way the media works and how to work a crowd. And boy, nobody understands populism like entertainers, um, like people who have been uh, successful in the media. Boy, I don't know where that takes us though. You know, the the fact that name recognition is as powerful as it is in politics just shows how dumb voters are to me. <laughs> I mean, you got, you got, in a lot of cases, two candidates. In the primary season, you got a handful. Um, the idea that, oh, this uh, Joe Schmedkovich, I wonder what he thinks. I'll take two minutes to figure it out. It's just too much work. Oprah, I've heard of Oprah. Or Donald Trump, for that matter. Although Trump, you know... At least had a history of speaking pretty politically. Um, that's well, the voters are dumb. God, if it were Trump versus Avenatti, holy cow! <laughs> oh, no, where are we as a no. country? Well, at least Trump. I mean, at least he builds hotels. 
Avenatti is like a sleazy porn carnival barker. Hey, come on in. Look at her. She's got big boobs. Two dollars ahead. Come on in, fellas. Yeah, oh, that's nice. That's nice. Wow. Just two dollars, huh? <laughs> that's that's right, Michael. Hey, getting back to the theme of uh, melting pot or civil war. Um, the uh, Raihan Salam book we were talking about uh, in the first half of the hour. If you, you know, it usually takes uh, a couple of uh, couple of ingredients to get an actual civil war going, and there are plenty of them around the world. If you'd like to learn about them, uh, right now, uh, you've got to have a sense of we are being being cheated, not just we're not doing as well, but that we are being denied what is rightfully ours, and we've got that just running hot and cold from the ideological faucets of America. You've got to be convinced that the other half are are bad people or less human, and they deserve what's coming to That's them. That's the part that I that I noticed the most, that the, the, they were so convinced now that the other side is not only wrong, they're evil. Mm-hmm. And, and different is really important, too. Um, and so, you know, and, and Raihan Salam was making the point that it's going to be eventually, and read the book to hear this fleshed out, but we're importing more and more immigrants who have no chance of making it to the middle class um, and never will. And so we'll, we'll have this subculture of resentful, um, impoverished, often non-English speaking or not feeling like a part of it people um, and then you, you, you add that to the politics of our time right now, and you've got a great recipe for really, really ugly conflict. Yeah, yeah Barton. Well, like I said on the talk shows yesterday, I've never seen people as what appeared to be legitimately mad at each other and talking over each other and that the host couldn't control the conversation. I've never seen it like that over anything. You know, sometimes it's a, it's a bad fight that makes you realize you've got to work on your marriage, for instance. Sometimes it's a bad fight that ends it. Yeah. Yeah. So which are we having? I don't know. Jeff Flake and uh, and his, his buddy Coons were hoping that it's the we where we've gone too far. Let's sit down and talk this out. But I don't know if that's going to win the day. You're listening to the Armstrong and Getty Show.